0: Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatim, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yangna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviyotam descendants who are part of the Gabrielino Tongva and the Fernandeno Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here, and we are committed to uplifting their stories, culture, and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Bianca Collins, I'm Director of Public Programs at Zocalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org, on podcast platforms, and YouTube, so please subscribe for our latest programs. We were founded in 2003, and we are now celebrating our 20th birthday year. Tonight we present the final program of our two-year event and editorial series, How Should Societies Remember Their Sins, supported by the Mellon Foundation. We've convened a series of public conversations that took us to Jackson, Mississippi, and Memphis, Tennessee, and an array of original work published on our website to address this question, exploring how societies around the world collectively remember their transgressions and make attempts at repair, and how we might imagine new paths forward. We continue this series this evening by asking, how does confronting our history build a better future? I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, William Sturkey. William is a historian at the University of Pennsylvania who specializes in the history of race in the American South. He's the author of Hattiesburg, An American City in Black and White, which won Zocalo's Book Prize in 2020. His next book, The Ballad of Roy Benavidez, The Life and Times of America's Most Famous Hispanic War Hero will be published in 2024. Over to you, William.
1: Good evening, everyone. Can you all hear me OK? Wonderful. Terrific. So I am William Sturkey. I'm a historian at the University of Pennsylvania. And it is an honor to be here tonight hosting the fourth and final installment in the series, How Should Societies Remember Their Sins? Um, We have an incredible panel of folks here tonight. Um, people who are not just public servants, I would say, but who are also innovators and creators and builders. And I'm very excited to introduce them to all of you. I'm going to ask that we hold our applause um, till I finish all three introductions so that we can actually get into the conversation, because I've got a mouthful to say just to introduce their accomplishments and their background. So get ready. Um, To my immediate left, uh, Shudaskat Martinez is an advocate, activist, and hip-hop artist Recently named to Times Next 100, Shudaskat has felt called to change the narrative on what it means to be an activist from the age of six, and has spoken multiple times at the UN addressing the General Assembly. Um, Shudaskat has also been a guest on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, in real time with Bill Mayer, um, has been featured on PBS, National Geographic, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, Vogue, Nickelodeon, CNN, HBO, Netflix, and Vice, and has been photographed by Annie Leibovitz. To his left is Philip Picardi, an award-winning journalist and editor best known for revolutionizing Teen Vogue, leading a social justice-based strategy that caused the publication to become the fastest growing women's magazine in the United States. Once dubbed the Prince of Condé Nast by New York Times, um, Picardi went on to found them. Condé Nast's first LGBTQ publication before becoming the youngest editor-in-chief of Out Magazine. He then decamped um, for a master's at Harvard Divinity School. Inspired by his studies, he left the media world to pursue direct service and advocacy for the LBGDQ community, and he is currently the chief marketing and communications officer at the Los Angeles LBGT Center, the world's largest LGBT nonprofit. Last but not least is Krista Trippett, journalist in National Humanities Medalist is a wonderful picture of her with Barack Obama receiving the National Humanities Medal. Um, she hosts the Peabody Award winning podcast On Being, which has been played or downloaded over 450 million times. She founded and leads the On Being Project, a media and social hearing- healing organization pursuing deep thinking and moral imagination, social courage, and joy towards the I- renewal of inner life, outer life, and life together. Her latest book is Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Please join me in welcoming our incredible panel here tonight. Um, So as the moderator, I will begin with some questions for our esteemed panelists. Uh, Part of the wonderful thing about having such an esteemed group is I can ask them very hard questions that I don't have any idea about the answer to. And then we'll dive into questions from the audience. So if you're thinking of a question um, throughout the start of our session here, please be ready to stand over to our left here um, where there will be a microphone for audience questions. And for those of us that are watching online, you can submit questions in the live chat on YouTube. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm actually gonna start at the far end with Krista. Okay, Krista, I was listening... To an episode of your podcast um, recently, and you were talking to Isabel Wilkerson about her new book, and you were, there were four metaphors that you all were using to describe the past and our society. And the two that really appealed to me were the body, but then an old home was one of the ones. And you know, American history is old and complicated, and there are parts that are maybe perhaps rotten or that need to be fixed or maintained or restored. And I just wonder, you know, if In this country, confronting our history isn't just fixing the obvious things that were wrong, but it also means to confront certain people and even confront people's ideals about what America is and even confront their ideals about social hierarchy and their own values. And so I just wonder as we start this conversation about confronting our history, what does it mean when you're also confronting other people in this society and then challenging them to take that journey with you?
2: A complicated question. Um, so, I guess I guess all I, I guess all I can say is that I feel like my like there is confrontation to happen, and I also think that we can. It's really a way our brains work that we that we see what is most distressing and frightening, and we see who is most distressing and frightening to us and we start to generalize about lots and lots of people on the basis of those most extreme voices and I think that's really a dynamic um, that's very alive in our culture and it shuts down our imaginations about how much actual space there is to step into and and people there are to, to walk alongside even if there is disagreement I, th- I think there are more people who have questions alongside their answers, and curiosity alongside their convictions. And so, I would say, just I feel like my I would say my calling that I feel is to kind of soften that space and kind of shine a light on that space where um, where confrontation isn't actually the necessary key. And again, that's not like I think there are there's all the there are these different levels of work that that we have to be doing at the same time, and and some of us are called to different aspects of that work. So I guess I guess that's that's how I look at that.
1: Yeah. Fair. Let's move toward me, um, Philip. Generally speaking, um, what does it mean to confront our history?
3: So when I was uh, first the editorial director of Teen Vogue before, you know, Teen Vogue had really gone viral. So I was like 23 at the time, and Nancy Reagan had just passed away. And our sister publications at Glamour and Vogue and other women's outlets were publishing slideshows of her gowns, like gowns, beautiful gowns, to quote Aretha Franklin. And um, it was like this... Glowing kind of tribute that to me was reading like this hagiography of Nancy Reagan and at Teen Vogue We were a newsroom that was majority folks who were under the age of 30 and many of us were queer and We were kind of taking an issue with the general like media coverage And so we actually published a piece called Nancy Reagan did nothing as thousands of LGBTQ people died of HIV AIDS and the story that we were unearthing was uh, for our audience, which is young mm-hmm. Americans, young American women, predominantly, who may not have been familiar with the Reagan administration, so this may have been their first time actually ever like hearing about Nancy Reagan. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that we were bringing that actual historical context to the conversation because uh, Hillary Clinton had been on television actually thanking Nancy Reagan for her contributions to the community during the HIV AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. And so the story that we told was about how Rock Hudson, the American actor, had um, basically been in Paris as he was like you know, living at the end of his life. And he needed pr- presidential intervention to get access to medical treatment for his end of life care. And he called the White House because the Reagans were his friends. And Nancy Reagan famously answered the phone and hung up on him uh, without offering him help. And we were roundly uh, critiqued for this coverage um, by people who were watching Fox News and who were insisting that their daughters would never read our publication again. Um, And I was nervous because I thought that my job was in jeopardy. I was called into my boss's office the next day, um, and I was pretty sure I was gonna get fired. And so I was really nervous. It was like, you know, I'd only been on the job for like six months. And by the time somehow that I was, you know, walking in for my final say or final show at Conde Nast, um, Elton John's AIDS Foundation had emailed uh, Anna Wintour and said, Thank you so much to Teen Vogue for telling the truth about what happened to our community because it's so easy for people to forget. And I understand right, that the critique was that it may have felt disrespectful of the recent passing of this woman. And I do hold space and compassion for that, while also holding a deep-seated rage for the people who died in shame, who were people who I could have built connections with and who could have been proud forebears of queer tradition that never got to live out the full potential of their lives or see the full potential of our movement in their lifetimes, despite that being something that they deserved. And um, I was really proud of us for saying what no one else was willing to say in that moment, because the collective consciousness of America can be very short. And if we're not going to carry on the tradition and be honest with each other about the history and really actually trust each other, and in our case, trust young people, to have the complexity to hold these truths all at once, which I believe young people can, I always have, um, then I think that we're just doomed to repeat the sins of our past.
1: Yeah. I can already see the layers building between your two answers. And I want to add another one. Um, shoot a scat. So. So often when we think about confronting our history, it's about confronting people who have been you know, oppressors or systems that have resulted in some sort of disadvantage for people. But what if we look at that through the lens of the environmental movement? What does confronting our history look like through the lens of, of some of the movements that you've been involved with?
4: I don't think it changes a whole lot. I would say, I think, um, the evolving analysis that I see really strongly held by a lot of people in the environmental justice and the climate justice space. Mm-hmm. Recognize and understand that the systems of power that have created the climate crisis, for instance, are intrinsically connected to uh, many of the systems of injustice in this country that have perpetuated colonial violence against indigenous peoples and the stealing of their lands and the enslavement of African peoples, that many of these systems of injustice are so deeply intertwined. Um, I think a, 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 a thirst for, for profit, for, for land, for uh, the exploitation and um, kind of sacrificing of communities uh, of black and brown and poor communities historically has always been at the root of, of the destruction of the environment. Um, and so I think we uh, find ourselves at a really interesting moment within the climate and environmental justice space where it's hard to talk about any of it without understanding how deeply interconnected all of it is. Uh, you see um, imagery of, of you know, polar bears and 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 kind of we talk about the carbon emissions and climate uh, in context of the climate crisis. But fundamentally, it is these uh, these larger systems of power that have kept money in politics from these fossil fuel corporations that continuously, put uh, our communities within the sacrifice zone of the construction of pipelines, of the building of power plants, of the transportation and production of fossil fuels, and least able to adapt to a world that is rapidly changing and that is experiencing more and more disastrous effects from the climate crisis. Um, And I think a lot of the same uh, misinformation and narratives that have existed have been seeded by these very wealthy, very powerful corporations mm-hmm. uh, that are invested in us being separated and confused, and um, not th- critically tying uh, and seeing the interconnectedness between these various issues. Um, you know, he, you can see millions and millions of dollars poured into PR campaigns by fossil fuel companies yep. to to make it unclear as far as you know how this is really political and this is really tied to social justice and human rights and racial justice. And I think indigenous liberation movements over the last decade have reminded us that the voices of the people that need to be at the forefront of these conversations are people who have been experiencing exploits some of the most horrendous and atrocious exploitation from the United States, from the government, from the relationship between the private sector and our government for 500 years since the arrival of, of colonialism um, on, these, on this continent. And um, the, 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 the fossil fuel industry is an extension of the way that indigenous people have been colonized, uh, an extension of of the of the violation of of treaties that have been signed, of rights that have been promised, um, and so we we see it as a as a modern manifestation, as a challenge not just to the environment, but to our survival as indigenous people. And that message is really important because it applies to all of us. The climate crisis threatens all of our cultural survival, regardless of our of our ancestry, or, or the color of our skin, or where we come from. Indigenous people, for us, it's oftentimes just easier to see because there's a very unbroken line that has been maintained of our relationship to the land, to our water, um, through our culture, through our history, through our stories. So I think that it's much more intertwined than, than we would think. And in environmental movements, you know, I'm I'm very happy to see more and more dialogue that is surfacing within that context of us recognizing and understanding that racial justice that that uh, labor, that women's rights, that kind of the intersection of all these different spaces is really important when we look at something as, as broad and, and as much of a hyper object as a climate crisis is.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, I'm gonna ask the same question of all three of you, but I wanna cue I it up by offering you an example um, from, from Zocalo this week. So Zocalo on Wednesday published an article by the law professor and historian Margaret Burnham. She teaches at Northeastern. And she talked about, in this, in this great article, I would encourage everybody to go to Zocalo's website and check it out, she talked about a lynching case from Virginia in, the, in near the turn of the last century. And so in, she also talked about different rape cases that resulted in executions. We used to execute people in the United States South for being convicted of rape. And of course, she made the point that a lot of these people were African-American men who were convicted by these juries that were all white, and there's all sorts of problems with race there. But she was saying that if we confront that history, if we go through and look at all the cases individually and then exonerate those people, or more fully look into the evidence and the process by which they were convicted, then that will help us better understand the criminal justice system today. And that will then lead to new policies that can help people who are falling fallen victim to that system today. And so just with with that example to prompt you, my question to you is, um, what does confronting our history do in your view? So Margaret Burnham was saying that can help us build new policies for mass incarceration. For you, what are the most important um, potential results for confronting our history in terms of how they might affect our society in the future?
4: I think Canada gave us a really good example um, when there was an immense amount of Dialogue and and research and the the foundation of something called the truth and reconciliation uh, commission that was Founded to basically do extensive studies into the massive graves that were discovered at many of the residential schools that uh, Stole indigenous children from their families and from their communities in, in Canada Um, And this was a very, you know, arduous process and a lot of research and data was collected and a lot of crocodiles' tears shed by different, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. prime ministers and and elected officials in Canada. And at the end of everything, um, what we see is Canada that has a bit of a a reputation of being, you know, perhaps a little bit more progressive or socially aware as as a lot of policy that is implemented here in the United States. the continuation of violation of rights of indigenous people and the failure to adequately create repair, even in the name of uh, creating this entire commission that that had a national context and implication in the ways that it it reckoned with its history. It had a a reconciliation to a degree with the information and the stories that it collected. Um, And at the end of the day, indigenous people were not left much better as a result of it. And in 2020, before the pandemic hit, Uh, There were raids that happened in the Wet'suwet'en camps and different indigenous communities in in Canada. Uh, Fossil fuel corporations going in and raiding these communities uh, of of disrupting their ceremonial grounds, of uh, challenging their treaty rights. And many of the young women in particular that were organizing and that were leading these protests, they declared that reconciliation is dead. That was a very powerful statement that that took place kind of at various events that that were spurred into action across Canada of of despite... um, a settler, a settler colony and, and the remnants of a settler colony uh, as Canada is, having the intentions of creating this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, it doesn't go far enough to actually create the repair that we need. So I think thinking about that critically
5: yeah.
4: within the context of, of how we exist is even a land acknowledgement is, is, a, is a nice formality. Um, but at the end of the day, when we look at power and how power is distributed and how land is tied to power, uh, we have a long ways to go to do the deep work to not just Reconcile or, or uh, unearth injustices and bring them to the table, and you know, kneel in Congress or you know, whatever it may be that is symbolically gesturing towards some kind of social progress. But fundamentally, the people who hold power that have resulted in the oppression of many of our communities are not interested in dividing that power, uh, in returning land, in and uh, in doing the deep work that is that is much more complicated than a lot of the stuff that exists on the surface or that that is virtue-signaled by our politicians and our elected officials. So it's a a complicated thing, but I think I also, to this day, too, continue to always follow indigenous leadership and how the conversation around land return and land back is is spurring a very different kind of dialogue that does center the return of power and resources um, to indigenous peoples.
1: Yeah. Um, Philip and Krista, whoever wants to to take it, what what promise does confronting our, our histories Hold for the future?
3: Um, <clears throat> I, I think so, right in California, um, for the past 10 or so years, we have had policy, progressive policy, that has allowed for LGBTQ curriculum uh, to be taught in schools. And LGBTQ history is largely not taught to LGBTQ people. And so Um, Similar to other marginalized folks, right, or folks who live at the intersections of these identities, we spend our lives looking for breadcrumbs to find where our past might be and where our spiritual past might be and how we belong. Um, And the the thing about the history not being taught um, is that it, it allows for a misunderstanding to take root, and it allows for erasure, obviously, to happen, too. So in California, uh, in Los Angeles especially, we have 61 upcoming school board elections. And uh, white nationalists are running for many of these school board seats right here in Los Angeles County and the surrounding areas. In Glendale over the summer, um, we had Proud Boys, uh, Moms for Liberty, and other far-right extremist groups showing up um, to a school board meeting where we were, the Glendale School Board was being asked to recognize June as Pride Month. And um, the school board meeting that our employees attended to show up to support LGBTQ parents or students was locked down by the police mm-hmm. because the protest outside had turned so violent um, that they needed to shelter in place for three hours until the police could get the protesters under control. And this is happening right here in our backyards, not too many miles from here. And um, there's a growing movement uh, in schools like Encino Valley, Glendora, Orange County, et cetera, that if a student starts using different pronouns at school or dressing a different way at school, the teacher is legally required to call the parents and tell, um, tell the parents about their, their, the student's gender identity, which is called a forced outing, uh, which is a gross violation of a child's privacy and consent and could very much endanger those children. When we're not honest uh, about, about history, when we're not teaching the full story, it allows people to fill in the blanks about us. And they only try to police the history that's taught because they know that it is so powerful and they know that it challenges the people who hold the power, right? And so as we're fighting in this upcoming election right here in California, even with all of the atrocities happening in the world and across the nation, you know what we're what we're really worried about is like how does the erasure of history and of these curriculums contribute to the erasure of our students and allow potentially a whole new generation of people to fall back into a misinformation campaign that, once again, is painting us as enemies of the American people or enemies of the American family. Um, And and, and that's why it's so important for us to be able to to have a well-rounded and intersectional approach to what we are learning and what we are absorbing and reading. Um, We can't build empathy unless we are honest about these histories.
1: Crystal, what do we stand to gain from confronting our histories?
2: You know, um, the example that you started with of lynching, um, I I just, I recently uh, interviewed Clint Smith, who wrote that wonderful book, How the Word is Passed. I think that show may air next Thursday, I'm not sure, next week or two. And um, he and I both actually right now have an interest in Germany where I spent... um, this is really going to date me but my 20s in divided Cold War Berlin in the 1980s and um, have become really fascinated now at you know having watched this place where an incredible an incredible concentration of atrocity and brutality right, you know unimaginable atrocity happened and, and, having been there kind of forty years after the end of the Holocaust and the war, and then and now forty years on from that, and seeing this seventy five eighty year arc of of a place, you know, the thing about Germany is that the whole world was you know they lost that war, the whole world was watching to see the reckoning, and yet, and it's not perfect because what human beings do is not perfect, but mm-hmm. I have recently been back to Germany. Thinking about how when I was there in the 1980s, they understood and I understood, or we all believed that I was from the country of innocence, right? right? Like they had the terrible history, and we didn't have a perfect history, but it's this American way of believing that we're always getting better, right? And in fact, Something that I've been thinking about a lot and that Clint and I talked about is you know the Holocaust was this handful of years and millions of people and you know the 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 allies like walked German citizens average German citizens were walked or walked themselves through the concentration camps in this country, we have these centuries, actually, of atrocity, right? But it was, there aren't, you know, lynchings, for example, happen kind of town by town and tree by tree. And what if, like, what, what would it mean for Americans to walk through, right? What would our equivalent be? And we can, we can talk about the longer history. Yeah. Um, at a human condition level, which is how I come at things, it, it always amazes me how we don't look for and internalize truths in our life together at the communal level, things we know to be true individually and in our families. For example, in a family, the stories that are not being told, the things that cannot be spoken are absolutely haunting and warping everything else. Mm-hmm. Growth is not possible. You know the question you asked, I think, is what does it affect? What does it affect if we confront our history? And I I I I, I want us also to be to be aspirational about like I think what we could what we can walk towards is wholeness, right? And actual growth. Um, and just remembering that these, these things that we're struggling to do well, right? Even to get diversity right or equity, or you know, these this, these words we use that are all too small for what we're trying to do, yeah. and yet they we have to we're we're working with them because this is the language and the tools we have. But these are not themselves the goal, right? The goal is to be whole human beings in a whole society. Um, in 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 that sense this this notion of diversity is
6: like,
2: we are diverse, right It's like we just have to live into the fullness of that reality um, in a way that is healthy and whole um, and redemptive for everyone for that whole spectrum of humanity that already exists, but we don't know how to honor that yeah um so so I just I think of it in those terms um this is a good, right? This is something we should all long for. Um, As I think, as we get healthy, if we get healthy in our families, we long to have the whole story of ourselves to work with.
1: Krista, I wanna ask you a direct follow-up. This is our fourth session. And I think a lot of what I've been thinking about has been leading to this and I think you do a wonderful job on your podcast of bringing people together and I think that we're in a communal space and a lot of people agree that we should teach our histories. But very directly, what would you say or what do you say to people who don't think that we should be teaching our histories? There are people that think that a book about children growing up in Jim Crow, Mississippi, should not be taught only to their kid, but to any other kid in the school. And so what would you say to that sort of a person to sort of bring them to, you know, bring them along or sort of, you know, confront whatever they're worried about?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, again, that's kind of not the angle in that I take. And I can also say that I do that because I know other people are working in schools, right? Yeah. Um, I also just want to say, confrontation is a necessary word and it's a necessary act, but it's not... um, necessarily very pragmatic, right? So in different situations and with different human beings, sometimes if, if, there's, if, you, if what you want to do is create new possibility, um, confrontation may not be the best opening, <laughs> right? I, so I guess what I'm always thinking about is um, also this matter of how to open hearts and minds and imaginations, and so sometimes what that what that is about is the creation of a hospitable space. Now, I want to be really clear that you know there, there are boundaries around that right so if there is if there is danger right you, that, that's you know has, creating a hospitable space is not about being stupid right um, But again, I do believe I, I, I guess what I'm trying to engage in is the creation of quiet um encounters and relationships away from the glare of the hyper-reactive um, society, societal kind of disc- so- so-called discourse that we have, um, where people can get outside of um, these, these boxes that, they've, that, they've, that they find themselves in. But I, I find, I mean, this whole matter of schools and education is so fraught, right? Mm-hmm. So highly charged. That this thing I'm talking about is probably not gonna happen in that context.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we're doing, at On Being, we're, we're doing, um, you know, we're, we, I used to be on the radio 52, <laughs> 52 weeks a year for 20 years, and that was enough. <laughs> and now we're doing a couple of seasons a year of the podcast, but what we're doing the rest of the time are what we're calling quiet conversations. So um, actually bringing people together without publicity. Hmm. and no social media, and with a commitment of relationship over a number of years. Um, I actually think that you know, in the conditions of our life together as they are now, as we are as we were in our infancy with these technologies and with social media, um, and it's just a hard time in the life of the world, and our, everybody where I believe we're all living out of our fear place, and, and we know what that does in a body and it, what it does in a collective body. Um, so that also, that, 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 is, that is kind of a way that I come at it, what can we do kind of below that radar um, to also to kind of create seeds for healing mm-hmm. and also knowing that this kind, we're, what we're talking about here, what we're longing for is not social change, it's transformation, it's social evolution that we need. right? And that is what, can only become possible when we're telling and living with the fullness, the true reality of our story Mm -hmm. of who we've been as well as who we wanna be. Um, And that needs a lot of different muscles being flexed.
1: Would either of you like to respond also?
3: Um, I think one of the things that's always hard to digest in, in these settings is you know, when you come to the table with your whole self, right? And we deal with this all the time with our folks, right? Especially the clients who are coming to us for help and for community. One of the things that's really hard is that sometimes to get to the point of change, we're often asking folks who bear the brunt of society's ills to hold the grace. Mm-hmm. And that I don't have the solution for that, but I just want to name that it really sucks, you know, and um, and that there is so much work and labor being done to to what to me feels like teach people to treat people with dignity and decency, and and that is and I understand that it's hard work, you know what I mean, and I and I and I'm not saying I don't value the work, um, but I think for us what we often find is like to create that space, and I dealt with this when I was at divinity school too, it's like to create that space for this difficult dialogue, what was happening is that people were getting harmed throughout the process.
2: And, and- that's not right, right? So, right. so that you, uh, more of us need to step in who are not most in the front lines of, like most vulnerable to be wounded, right? That, that, so I'm saying we need to create circles um, and webs of relationship and of accompaniment mm-hmm. around around that yeah and
3: I, I totally agree with that and mm-hmm. I think it's noble and important work. Um, and I think at the same time if we are doing that work, what also does the work look like for those circles to just exist within the community so that folks within community can find support from each other yeah. and find their soft like landing ground you know um, and make sure that our folks you know, those folks who may be impacted by those conversations really do have their roots somewhere and know that they're supported. Um, because that is, I think that's what is, I think people are fed up with having to be graceful right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to say that I really feel and hear that and, yeah. and, I, and I hold space for that, yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: I wonder about the role of religion. Um, and there's all, one, there. so there are two, Masters of Divinity School graduates on our panel here today, and so I I need to ask about this. But then also, you know, the church has often been a space for healing, for productive conversations in the past. And we all hear about declining church membership. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, also, you know, Christianity, I mean, the Old Testament is what is, it's a usable past is what it's meant to be in some ways. And so I wonder about what do you think about the role of religion in terms of these conversations about historical confrontations? You first
2: <laughs> <laughs> to, in, it's to anyone. really complicated right now. Um, I don't know. again, I'm gonna say uh, uh, you know one thing I'm gonna say is that I don't if I'm looking for the the healing um, transformative role of the best of what our religious and spiritual traditions, the best of what they represent in the human enterprise. I'm not necessarily looking at the institutions. And I'm certainly not looking at the loud voices who stand up to represent everyone else and who actually, um, you know, and this is there's a collusion of the way journalism works. Um, and people who are very willing to speak on behalf of god and all right and all all people of faith Um, and having said that i you know i care about I, i do care about these traditions as the place in again in the human enterprise across time and space where we have language and practices and rituals, like confession and repentance, and lamentation and redemption, we don't we don't have that that this is where this vocabulary lies in our midst. That is not necessarily being best represented by and and I and I, what I you know when I say that I'm just also thinking about again the loudest representatives of the because there's the the thing about um religious people and communities who are i believe being most faithful to the core of these traditions are not putting them throwing themselves in front of cameras and microphones they are Mm -hmm. getting on with care Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that is kind of invisible but i i do believe that that in our midst um is essential to walking into this future where all of our children, you know, can live into their deepest humanity and where we have human flourishing and not just survival. Mm -hmm.
1: Should we just go to Philip? You go first?
4: Cool. Um, I, admittedly, I think I I have a lot to learn about Religion and religious institutions and, and uh, the complexity that uh that has been behind the relationship that I have to it, which I would say my explicitly like with Catholicism, right? My upbringing um, my understanding of, of Catholicism is is. The primary tool that was used to dehumanize and justify the the genocide and of my ancestors um, and the stealing of our lands, um, the erasure of our language, uh, my great grandmother her indoctrination into the Catholic Church is the reason that my grandfather never learned our language,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and subsequently my father i mean you know so uh, as generations went on and, and, and things changed and, and a lot of people began to kind of resist a lot of the dogma and a lot of the the violence that was per, 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 perpetuated um, from uh, uh, kind of these, these institutions that were that were weaponized to to harm our people and to erase us. Um, there's been a lot of work to repair and to undo and, and to resist, and I think that i I grew up with that being a pretty like, strong truth and how, how I personally relate to and understand it as an institution that has been weaponized as a tool uh, to, to end an immense amount of life in, in this world um, and, and the result that resulted in the colonization of, of, of this continent. Um, and the millions and millions and millions of lives that were that were lost, the, the populations that were decimated, in the name of, of God, in the name of the Church. Um, and again, you know, my great grandmother, to her dying breath, was a very devout Catholic woman. And the amount of love and care we had for her, uh, as a matriarch of our family, you know, it was it was an, also a really important teaching to understand compassion and the humanity beyond you know, these institutions that does exist. And I think the hope that um, I've seen with different religious leaders and and, and folks entering conversations, whether it's, you know, humanitarian work or or, uh, environmental uh, spaces of, you know, these lenses that we can see the world through being things that that further humanize us. Um, And I think that that, I don't know what the reckoning within the Catholic Church looks like um, or, you know, the ways in which, that history is so real, and I think also uh, very not uh, communicated or not or not. You know, um, the Catholic Church is, it remains you know one of the largest like landowners in the United States too. Um, so thinking about th- those different relationships that we have to the Catholic-run you know boarding schools that Indigenous children were shipped off to and taken to here in North America. Um, that's that's a lot of my my re- relationship to it, my context to it, and so I. I aspire to to learn and understand to how we can reach beyond the violence of that history to create you know reparative conversations and, and and constructively understand how the church has been a tool to organize marginalized peoples whether it's through uh you know different histories of black liberation movements and um ways in which it has been a tool to 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 create safe spaces for for people that have been also experiencing an immense amount of Violence and subjugation by various systems of oppression. So I see it very intertwined with a lot of these other power structures, um, and uh, yeah, I think um, my hope is that the humanity that is, you know, within the people that practice re- whatever religion it is or no religion at all, um, can sur- surface and kind of shine through and. Uh, be at the heart of, of the way we interact with each other of various different beliefs and, and you know, it's not necessarily a dismantling of any religion that is needed in my eyes, but I think more so a, a reckoning of, of of the impact and of, of the responsibility held by these different institutions to create the repair that is needed and, and from there too, how can the future reflect, you know, many of the ideals that I believe are at the heart of many of the people that do deeply believe uh, in these in these spaces or in these spiritual beliefs. So I have a lot to learn, for sure. Yeah, Philip. Um,
3: yeah, I am an ex-Catholic. I came out of the closet when I was fourteen, left my confirmation classes, much to my dad's chagrin. He named me after his favorite saint, um, and mm. I, you know, I found myself uh, at odds, obviously, with the Catholic Church for a variety of reasons uh, throughout my throughout my life, and actually, most recently at the center. You know, we were prote- we were dealing with these Catholic groups who didn't want these drag queens called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence showing up to a Dodgers game. And so they were sending bomb threats to the Dodgers stadium. I mean, it was nuts. And the Archdiocese of California released a statement that was like, if that community wants a culture war, then that's what they'll get. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're really worried about the culture war with the Catholics. You know what I mean? Like, We have share. Like, who do you have? You know what I'm saying? Um, so um, I I have a really strong revulsion, you know, towards the Catholic Church that ha- has been lifelong and embedded in me because I was raised in Catholic school, raised by a deeply Catholic father. He used to go on these silent retreats with um, these like Order of Franciscan monks to holy appar- like Marian apparition sites where people, you know, believe they were seeing the Virgin Mary. Um, and so he's a very devout man. He wanted me to be a priest because it was. If you couldn't tell, very clear from a young age that I was gay, um, and so he was trying to save me, you know, and I think when it, when I decided to leave the media because I was editing Out Magazine, the nation's largest LGBTQ magazine, and it was owned by a Republican man who was donating to anti-gay politicians and stopped paying our freelancers. Uh, and so when I decided to leave out, I had this kind of crisis about where I would go next. And the only thing that I kept hearing as a call was to go towards God. And it was so weird because I hadn't prayed since I came out of the closet. I, I got down on my knees. I did the sign of the cross. I said a Hail Mary. I said an Our Father. And then I said goodbye. And I said, you know, in that final prayer to God that I didn't want to be living on the earth, choosing between myself Or my creator. And if I was going to make a choice, I was going to choose myself and I would deal with the consequences later. What I realized, you know, when I was at divinity school and I was plunging myself into studying the Catholic mystic tradition, um, the history of Christianity, obviously how religion has shaped the history of the Western world, was that so many of us, right, are turning our backs on God in this moment. It's like a badge of honor to not believe. You know, to not have faith because it's looked at as arcane, maybe, or old school, or conservative, or whatever it is. And I think that my reframe at divinity school, as I was learning more, really came to be like, you know, they actually want me to not believe that I'm worthy of God. Like, they actually want to take God away from those of us who deserve God. And the idea that as a kid, I was letting these grown ass, old virgin men take my divinity away from me when they can't take my divinity away because it is God-given, that I could go reclaim that and then use it to be the source of my power and the source of my faith and my direction in the world was like the greatest gift I ever could have given myself. It was the gift that no Christian adult was willing to give me in my entire life. And I am so proud to be a believer and I am also so grateful for the Divinity School experience because it really taught me that faith is not just a spiritual practice or a relationship to a being. Faith is just like love in that it requires a deep discipline. It requires constantly showing up. And it requires showing up in the most unimaginable of ways. And when I think about how faith manifests itself in the world, I'm not interested in going back to a church. I'm not interested in sitting in a pew and listening to the loudest voice in the room. That's why I'm working at a community center. like if you want to see God, go see a social worker, right? Go see people who have sacrificed their lives to fighting for the people who need our help the most. And I just think that, that sense of, like, we don't need God to get through this. We, we need prayer more than ever, actually, I would argue. Um, and the only way through this is to believe that there's a way through it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I get one more question, and I'm going to have to ask you all I'm going to try to make this a little bit less complicated, um, and I'm going to have to ask you all to give slightly shorter, shorter answers. But um, when I was reading much more about you all, um, there was a line from one of Philip's interviews, and you said this. After working for over a decade in the media, I know how powerful storytelling can be as a cultural self. And so one of the reasons that struck me in preparing for this panel was because... You know, I'm an academic and I teach and I teach African American history and hard history, but I'm also somebody that's been consuming media in the last several years. And there has been an absolute revolution in black storytelling, whether it's fiction or truth. Watchmen, Lovecraft Country, The Good Lord Bird, Twelve Years a Slave. Like we're telling black stories and all sorts of stories in really different ways. And I'm not the academic that's buttoned up lecturing somebody. I'm the guy on the couch like cheering on. You know, as they get away from the ghost or whatever, (laughs) and I just wonder, can you say more about like that sort of storytelling? That sort of storytelling that isn't as academic, that isn't necessarily as demanding on our society, but is really generative and creative. You know, as as a cultural salve, as you say. You know, um, what is that? Where does that sort of storytelling? Where does that sort of art fit into our conversation? For for whoever wants to jump in.
4: I think I think artists are have such an important responsibility in our movements, to be those that generate the imagination for the rest of the population to kind of begin to see the, the possibilities of a different world. Um, and I, as someone who has been an, an activist my entire life and an artist my entire life, um, you see that the storytelling potential is, um, or the potential for us to kind of create the future that we know is possible through the stories that we tell uh, has been the center of a lot of my work over the last couple of years as I've leaned further and further into my art into my music uh into composing into you know that that form of, of storytelling um and seeing kind of similarly to, to what you were sharing uh, a, a revolution and a renaissance of, of indigenous representation in popular culture in in media in us yeah. having the autonomy to tell our own stories and represent ourselves and and destroy caricatures and and uh and stereotypes and and show up in all of our complexity through our art, our film, our fashion, our storytelling. So it's a a really, it's close to my heart, this question and and this idea that uh, you know, I think most of us don't have any illusions that music or or art or film on its own will change the world or will bring forth liberation for our communities uh, to the degree that we need it to. But I think it can help seed an imagination of a world that is radically different than the one that we see in front of us. And I think I, I draw so much inspiration from the role that art has played in social movements throughout history, um, and so I, I feel incredibly grateful to, to be amidst a generation of people who are who are continuing to use these different means that are perhaps less academic or and are more popularly accessible to yeah. the masses to help all of us collectively dream of something outside of the of the chaos and the violence that we do see around us Um, and to see ourselves in these very nuanced and and, in complex ways as we are as indigenous people or as you know, folks from from whatever kind of marginalized identity, when we oftentimes don't see ourselves in those ways, it can help us contextualize uh, what is possible, you know, beyond the violence of of the world around
5: us.
3: Um, Well, so long as we're uplifting black storytelling, uh, I want to uplift the book The Risk It Takes to Bloom by Raquel Willis. She's a black trans activist from Georgia who did Boots on the Ground work in Oakland before moving to New York. I would encourage you to pre-order her book. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work uh, and a vital one for our community. Um, and I think, you know, at the center, uh, I, I moved from magazines to nonprofit, right? The thing I love that you uplifted fashion, because fashion, we were always trying to find a beautiful and joyful way to tell a story. So, when we were photographing uh, Halima Aden for our cover, uh, Halima is a Somalian refugee um, who became a supermodel uh, here in the United States. And, um, you know, there, UNICEF was working with us on the story, and there was all this desire for like a photojournalistic approach, which is a wonderful and noble thing to do. But the Teen Vogue thing was like, she's on the cover of Teen Vogue. Like, <laughs> let's turn out all of the looks that we can and, like, let's photograph her in this, like, pastoral American dream, release it on the 4th of July, and, like, call it I Am America. And it was a really triumphant and beautiful way to tell Halima's story and all of the complexities of, of her words that helped to illustrate that piece. When I get to nonprofit, you know, a lot of the storytelling can sometimes emphasize folks' trauma and um, sometimes I, what i worry about is that we were sacrificing our clients dignity for dollars mm. and um, the the thing about like the thing about the center is like if you go talk to a frontline worker about our clients they're not talking about them like oh these poor people right like we are finding ways to celebrate folks every day and make things happen and so we really wanted to to center joy in in the storytelling um, because so much of what, you, what Americans think of, and repeated surveys have shown this, when Americans are asked to think about a transgender person and they don't know a transgender person, they actually envision someone alone and depressed and having suicidal ideation, right? And that is so out of step with like, <laughs> every trans person I know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it's not possible, right? And of course it is, and we need to do whatever we can to address that. And believe me, you know, in our work we are. But we need to show a different side of the story. We need to show people being loved and celebrated and in family and accepted by their families to help be a possibility model for folks. Um, and so one of our first storytelling pieces that we worked on at the center was like, how do we get a fundraising video that's not prioritizing trauma? And so we actually had Nicole Ritchie from The Simple Life come to the center. Mm-hmm. And we planned activities for her throughout our community center through the day. So she made pasta in our kitchen with our culinary arts students, who are our senior and youth clients. She joined a senior line dancing class and danced to Mary J. Blige with their seniors. And then she jumped into a youth fashion show, because the youth uh, from the center are often involved in the ballroom scene here in Los Angeles. And it was this opportunity for us to showcase the people who we serve as the heroes of their own stories, um, and also to celebrate like joy and an uplifting sense of community as the core of our work, rather than just fixing a problem, um, we were able to just position our community as the solution, um, and I think that that's so important because it helps further advance the mission of the center um, while showing a different view of LGBTQ people everywhere
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I just I want to kind of affirm what I've heard from both of you. We so underestimate the power of the human imagination in getting where we want to go. Right? We we and um, it. I've 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 interviewed people across the years who, like John Lewis and Desmond Tutu and Juan Maathai, who made things possible that, that no one believed possible, right, and they did it because they, their imagination stretched farther and they threw their lives behind what they could, what they, what they wanted to make possible in the world. And, and yes, and, 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 and there has to be joy in it, right? I've, I, you know, thinking about our climate reality, our ecological reality, I was just having this conversation this week, if, if, if all we do is tell the dystopian story of the future, we are making that future, we are, we are creating that future, right? And, um, and yes, joy, and and like you know the the thing about the existential terrifying <laughs> crises and reckonings of this century also that i feel especially young activists just understanding in their bodies this wisdom that is rising up is that the way to walk into that as the work of the rest of our lifetimes whoever we are is to take know what we love right as much that be grounded in what we have to fight and confront we have to know what we love right and we have to have joy our human birthright of joy as fuel right and love as fuel for those those great reckonings and and to the extent that it's confrontation that it's fighting um and all 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 of that right and is is is, is how, we, how we make the story of who we want to be and make that real. And the arts are absolutely critical in this. And I think it's another reason that I, we, all of the battles that have to be fought in our schools and in education, they must be fought. And those movies and shows that you named are also education. They are also formation. They are also forming imaginations. They are also telling stories and histories. Watchmen, right? I grew up in Oklahoma and never learned about the Tulsa Massacre, right? Mm. It, it wasn't in, in books, in the school books. It, 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 was, it was not, I, I spent my entire childhood until I was 18 in that state and did not know that, that story. Mm. And I really think that that show <laughs> was the single um, educational experience that, that helped me really inhabit that and own it and that, that is not insignificant even if it's not official education. These are all ways that we are, that our minds and our conscious that are feeding an ex- the possibility of an expanded mind and consciousness and therefore reality.
1: Thank you so much. We're gonna send it over to Bianca for some questions from our audience.
0: Hello, yes, I'm over here. Um, We only have time for a couple questions, so I want to encourage our in-person audience. If you have any questions, just get on up and come over here. I'll give you the mic. Uh, If I don't see anyone hopping up real quick, I'm going to start with an online question, and then we'll only have time for one from the in-person audience. So I will start with an online question. All right. Uh, Oh, also a reminder, if you want to submit a question on your wristband, there's a number that you can text. All right, so the first question asks, are there examples from other cultures where forgiveness is actively practiced in restorative ways? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, there are. Great start. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think you mentioned Canada. I mean, there are just different, there are different models um, and none of them is perfect, Mm -hmm. but um, I mean, you know, truth and reconciliation, which I I think something that is easy to do is look at, um, is in fact, look at places where, where societies are are taking that approach and say, but look, they're still so tortured, right? There's still so much that's wrong. And, um, and that's true, and it's also true that that you know, transformative change um, takes more than three to five years. And Americans uh, in particular um, don't have a reality-based view of time, and therefore we waste so much time Rushing to action that we then later on have to dismantle because we didn't We did it. We didn't do the discernment Um, But you know, I I remember when I spoke with Desmond Tutu and um, You know, he said that uh, Europe gave him great hope because look just a few hundred years ago these people were in 30-year wars and hundred-year wars Um, and it was very clear to him that what they had started with, with, with that process of national forgiveness, um, or forgiveness as part of this process of truth and reconciliation was, was going to be, have to be generations and generations and generations, um, reaching its fullness. And like I do, you know, there's an incredible organization actually in the context of this Conversation called "Facing History and Ourselves." I don't know. Does anybody know that? Mm-hmm. They work with hundreds of thousands of teachers around the world, um, and with this idea that um, you know that we have to change ourselves in order to change the society. I I think you know. I've had this conversation with Isabel Wilkerson, and I think we had it in that in that conversation you heard in Seattle again last year, that um, the civil rights uh, era um, changed laws, and, and even the civil rights elders, I mean, they, were, they had such a genius and sophistication in how they went about what they went about. But there was also this real faith in that generation that if we change the laws, we change the society, and as Isabel says, we changed the laws, but we didn't change ourselves we didn't really, really engage in that, and so here we are, a half century later, seeing that some of what we thought we were like on the way to completion in the 60s was just baby steps, right? And this Facing History in Ourselves, um, they take this holistic approach and they are working in societies um, that are coming out of war and violence and they are investing in precisely this thing we're talking about in, in how does education become part of social evolution? And so, yeah, this, this is all, happening all over the place, but again, it's quiet, it's quiet, and it's long-term work.
4: Just Thank to briefly you. Oh, yes. Go ahead super quick, I think um, when the conversation of land return and land back comes up for a lot of people who are interacting with it for the first time, uh, particularly a lot, a lot of white people, there is an anxiety that is projected that the understanding of the atrocities that were, were done to indigenous peoples for the last 500 years and the remnants of, of those impacts um, instill a fear that when we talk about Land back that, we, that somehow this vision is a vengeful one, that we will enact the same violence uh, in retribution when we are talking about our return of lands. Um, and a lot of people are confused about that. Like, well, where will the white, like, well, are we gonna be sent back to Europe? Or like, what's, what's the vibe? Um, <laughs> and I think that it's really important to understand that uh, the conception of, of indigenous futurism that comes with this really beautiful and, and sprawling uh, vision and complex vision of, of land return and of land back, and of indigenous people re- returning to, to leadership over the lands that we traditionally belong to. Um, it doesn't, you can't contextualize it within the violence of the settler history that exists here in the United States, because that was never our conception of the world in the first place, was through that lens of violence. And so um, maybe not a perfect example of, of forgiveness, but many of the indigenous people that I have worked with in communities that are actively working to return, to have lands returned to their traditional owners and stewards um, our vision is, has nothing to do with revenge. It has nothing to do with enacting the same violence that we are, that we suffered. Uh, and it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. It is a land back for, for many of us is, is a, a, encompasses a liberated future for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really beautiful. And it's despite the immense amounts of pain that have been experienced by our communities, the last thing that we want to do is to replicate those systems for anybody else. Um, and I think that is a powerful example of yeah. of looking into what we can build generatively into the future um, and reaching for that aspirationally and, and seeing it trickle in as a, as a reality bit by bit.
0: Thank you. All right, so this is our last question for the evening. We have an in-person question.
6: Hi, my name is Layla Hamidi. Um, I'm really inspired by just the phrase moral imagination. Um, it's really... Um, not seductive, but it carries so much promise with it and hope with it. And I want to understand in your thinking what the ingredients are for it, if, um, particularly if I think of what the counter would be, which is maybe moral apathy. Does it include grieving, absorption of kind of the truths? And just to make it more complex, can you guys share a moment of transformation that you've personally experienced or witnessed as? kind of a takeaway of hope because we need hope right now
2: would you say so a moment of a personal transformation I was just I was having trouble hearing. a moment of
6: personal transformation or transformation that you've witnessed a personal uh, kind of bot in person body experience of either witnessing or feeling that yourself mm-hmm. yeah.
4: Yeah, I think more and more we see hope needing to be such an, an active practice, not a box that you check or, or something that, that happens passively. Um, and for many indigenous communities, we have, we have seen the end of our worlds. We have seen and lived through uh, apocalyptic times. And despite that, I am only here because we survived it. We survived uh, the, the most uh, heinous of atrocities. And um, someone asked me, I was speaking at a college recently, and they were asking me about, you know, what does a liberated future look like to you? And I smiled in that moment because part of me is like, in many ways, I'm living a version of that mm. for those that came before me, for my ancestors and my elders, and, and those that, that hoped that we could Live in a dignified way and speak our language and show up and, and, and be who we are, you know, without the subjugation of the violence uh, around us, ever present, de- defining our, our reality. Um, and so I think, in, in many ways, the, the hope that I, I carry comes from a long lineage of, of not having an option but to remain it's so strong in our, in our belief, in our hope, in our optimism for there being something beyond the horizon of, of the injustices that we have lived through and that we have seen. Um, and I think going home, going to Mexico, being with my community, seeing these agricultural systems that are 900 years old, the chinampas, that my family has, has worked and cared for these lands for generations, that they still exist despite uh, every attempt to erase them um, is, a ground, is a grounding and a reminder of, of that, that uh, responsibility that we have to be hopeful, to those that came before us and to those that will follow.
3: Um, there, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the moral apathy piece that you mentioned, which I think is, is a, apathy is such a good word. Like, we're inundated. We are doom scrolling, as the kids say, on our phones. And I think the problems of the world can feel so big that it can feel useless to even engage anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there was one day where, where the headlines were, were pretty bad and work was, was pretty hard because of it, you know. We had lost a colleague and it was, it was a really hard uh, period of time. And uh, I was speaking with someone who works with our seniors, so I mentioned that line dancing class. So, there's a couple, they are both veterans, they are elders, and they go to this line dancing class every week without fail. And they were in it for like three, four months, but only one of them danced. And so, wh- finally, like one of our social workers like walked up to the guy who was on the sidelines, and she was like, "Hey, I think your husband wants to dance with you. Like, I know you're shy, but like, get up and dance." And he was like, "Oh no, it's not that I'm shy. It's that I'm embarrassed. I can't hear the music. Mm-hmm. Um, his hearing aid had broken, and he was not really willing to ask us for help. And so she took him to his doctor's appointment, and we we paid for a new hearing aid for him. And then he celebrated his first dance with his husband in 10 years um, the following week at the line dancing class. And I love this story so much because, um, you know, there's this Saint Therese of Lisieux who talks about the little way and just like doing the little things and focusing on the little things will make the big things feel more manageable. Um, and for me, that story really captures it, right? Like everything was terrible and everything felt impossible. And I heard that story and I realized that we were going to get through it and it was, it, we, we could get through it and it would be fine. Um, and that actually we could get through it and we could find love somehow on the other end of it.
2: Um, well, this, the question makes me reflect on the fact that, um, you know, I, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, a place where... Um, my ancestors, you know, came in covered wagons and stole land, and other people were forcibly marched. Um, I, I grew up uh, um, in a town called Shawnee, and next door was Tecumseh and Seminole, and it was Potawatomi County, and I had absolutely no knowledge of what those words and names, that, that those were people and people and peoples and was not taught that and actually was not curious about it. Um, It's actually very strange to me how those, that the names had been kept when everything they represented had been forgotten um, or disappeared and um, desecrated. And, you know, I represent (laughs) um, as the elder up here, you know, somebody who was born in the mid-20th century and, uh, and, uh, and have a completely different understanding of my country and the story, right, of, mm. of who I am and who we are. Um, it's, it's, it's embarrassing and it's, it's, um, it's astonishing, right, to think how much had been actively forgotten and not transmitted. Um, and it's astonishing, um, you know, for me to think how much, like, you know, and, you know, just in, in the last couple of years interviewing Joy Harjo, who's then the Poet Laureate, and she's in Tulsa, and our two stories of this this place um, that we come from, which is just so emblematic of the story of our country. Um, so... You know, I, I do represent fuller a fuller history being internalized, incredibly late, right? Shamefully late, and also I just wanna say, even just uh, 10 minutes after we sat down up here tonight, I was kind of listening to the two of you, the three of you, and looking at you, and thinking about what we're discussing, and how we're discussing it, and in my lifetime, right, this this would have been unimaginable, right? This conversation, this configuration of humanity, this subject, these questions, um, the things that are being given voice to and just named, which are just truths, but these truths haven't been alive in our midst, and they haven't been part of, and when I say our, right, like I mean our total self-understanding. Um, And so like this is transformative and I just wanna, you know, there's so much to despair about in the world right now and we can all point to 10 things that we learned about or read about or participated in or probably read in the news that are also true and this too is true. Mm. Um, And I'm just, I'm I'm really grateful for this and I think we also need to actively, when we have these moments of seeing the generative narrative unfolding and the fuller telling of truth and the fuller living into truth, let's, let's, let's take that in, right? Yeah.
1: Um, you all have given us so much. We are way out of time. <laughs> but thank you all so much. I know that you've given us so much and so much to think about. So thank all of you for being here. <laughs> Let me... <laughs> let me just say just a few words of uh, closing so zocalo is also going to give us more Um, by tomorrow you will be able to find a summary of our conversation at zocalopublicsquare.org you'll also see some fun interviews with our panelists get to know them a little bit more and then also you can access all the conversations and essays that have been produced for this series so i would encourage everyone who's curious to really dive in and um, subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, their podcasts, and all their social media. Uh, For the in-person folks, we are going to have a party at this point in time. We've got the Pan-African People's Arquette coming out in just a few short minutes. But before we do that, please join me once again. um, We'll thank you all for your audience, and please join me once again in thanking our panelists for tonight. (laughs)
7: Pan-African People's Orchestra was a band started by one Mr. Horace Tapscott in uh, Lemurde Park, nestled in the heart of South Central Los Angeles. And uh, that band is over 200, 300 cats throughout 60 years. You got five of them here tonight. Um, while I'm talking about them, this is Mr. Joel Ector, Mr. Joey Ector on Upright Bass. Next to him is Mr. Fundy Lejean on French horn. Fundy Lejean, French horn. Next to him is Randall Fisher on tenor saxophone. Randall Fisher. In the back with me, one Mr. Brian Hargrove. Brian Hargrove on keys. And my name is Michaela Session. We're just going to get to it. Thank you uh that tune we just did was entitled goat in the ram jam it was by one mr jesse sharps legendary pan-african people's orchestra composer um but he is not a legend he is very real that's jesse sharps that's a tune he wrote called goat in the ram jam before that we did uh a horse tap scott classic uh the dark tree Um, Right now, we're going to get into our next two songs. The first is a cut by my father, Mr. Michael Session, which he entitled Umatu Umatu by Michael Session. After that, we're going to get into a Nate Morgan cut entitled Imrefu. One more time, that's Joel Ector on the upright bass. Next to him is Mr. Fundy Lejean on the French horn. Over here is Randall Fisher, tenor saxophone. That's Brian Hargrove on the keyboards. My name is Michaela Session. The Pan-African people is Arctet. just a slice of the whole orchestra. Over here is my man Zero on the boards, shouts to Zero, uh, Sam on all oh, things Sam. Thank you all very much, peace. That might have been our last song, actually. I was told we had five minutes, like five minutes ago. So uh, unless you guys are literally like rioting and throwing stuff, I think we're done. One more? Did I see somebody throw something? Riot, riot? Okay, we'll do one more. (laughs)
0: again to the Pan-African People's Arctet. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you everyone for joining us tonight. We're so glad that you could join us to conclude our series. We're so honored to do this work. Please join us again for one of our upcoming programs. We will be at the Port of Los Angeles on November 12th for a diaspora dance party. Thank you again and we hope to see you again soon.